Sometimes a simple reminder is what we need most. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is a pretty diverse room. Lots of different backgrounds and stories coming together into one space. But if there is one bond between us, is that we are deeply and personally loved by Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room matters to Him. Everyone in this room is on His mind. And we get to share in that. And sometimes a simple reminder is what we need most. The Apostle Peter understood this. And he provided for us in God's word a letter. It was his final letter to the church. To the churches. And in this little three chapter book called Second Peter. He gives some reminders to the church. That would help us live out our faith. Because there's some things at stake. And one of the things at stake is, is the orientation or the refocusing of our own hearts. Because we are often distracted. But there's also another thing at stake. And that is people are watching and the world is watching to see if what we believe is really real. If our walk will match our talk. And so, I know that when you came into this place... You came in with a motivation of, I want to worship my God. I want to be encouraged in my life. And I want to be directed in the way that I should go. And that is exactly what God's word has for us. That if we can be reminded of some simple truths, it will help us. And so this is all about a reminder. Reminding each other of a truth because of realities we face. And so I'd like to ask that you turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. It's at the end of the New Testament. And if you hit 1 Peter, go right. If you hit 1 John, go left. And you will will find 2 Peter. If we've not yet met, my name is David Hinkle and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's really a privilege to continue the Living Hope series with you today as we move into 2 Peter. Like I mentioned, this is Peter's last letter to the church, and God had revealed to him that he was about to die for his faith. I just want to remind you in verse 12, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though now you know them and are established in them in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my own body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at, my t- at any time to recall these things. So if you were to know that these were the last words being spoken by someone that you respected and loved and followed, you would lean in. You want to pay attention of, okay, well, what, what are the final words? And what Peter says is he goes, I'm going to remind you of something. And he's going to remind us uh, of a truth that we'll find. 
I want to read the passage for you. I'm going to start in verse 16. We'll go through chapter 2, verse 10. I will warn you that once we get into chapter 2, things are going to get a little heavy. Okay? So just stay with me and uh, we'll get there. Verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. What I want to do is I want to go back through this passage in two sections. We'll start in chapter 1. And then move into chapter 2. And in chapter 1, we're going to find our reminder. Truth that we need. And the truth is this. Our faith is not a myth. Our faith is not a myth. When we use the word faith, and when we think about a simple song which began our time, that Jesus loves us, that is making a faith claim about a person. And so when we think about our faith, we have faith in the identity of Jesus and we have faith in the work of Jesus. His identity is that he is God. Jesus was the agent of creation. He made everything. He made us. And he loves us. In our rebellion, we despised his authority We have our own sensual desires that we want to see fulfilled in the way that we most see fit. And so we turned our hearts away from God. All of us have gone astray. No one has some kind of special claim on perfection. We all have turned astray. And so this this person in whom we have faith in, our God, 
He became a man, and then that ushers in his work for us. And Jesus took on flesh, came in the form of an infant, and he lived a sinless and perfect life. He lived for us. He died for us. He paid the penalty of our sin to satisfy the wrath and judgment of his father. And he rose from the dead. And quite honestly, when it comes to faith, those are the areas where I most often focus. Who he is and what he's done. He is God. And he died and gave his life for us and rose from the dead. But there's more to the claims of Jesus that Peter focuses on than what I have in my everyday life. You see, for Peter, the work of Christ wasn't finished at the resurrection. There is a return where Jesus is coming again. And that is the summation of our faith. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and is coming back. And it's not a myth. This is not a made-up story. This is not some cleverly concocted fairy tale. And here's what Peter tells us in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw it firsthand. Verse 17 says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He's going to say, we heard it and we saw it. What Jesus is referring to is an occasion in his, or what Peter is referring to is that when Jesus in his ministry, he pulled aside three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he said, fellas, let's, let's go up on this mountain. And they just said, okay. And so they followed him up on this mountain and then something happened that they did not expect. Now they had seen some amazing things with Jesus. They had seen him teach with incredible authority and power. They had seen his power over healing the sick, casting out demons, and then even his authority over nature. They got mad at him when their little boat on the Sea of Galilee was rocking and he was asleep. And they're like, do you not care for us? They had seen some amazing things, but they had never seen this. And on this mountain, Jesus, under the will of his Father, revealed his true glory and nature. And he showed them exactly who he is. And he, in an instant, went from teacher, rabbi, mentor, friend, companion that they followed to the king. And they had no option except to just bow before his glory and his majesty. And when that happened, they heard a voice from heaven that says, This is my son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus said, Now don't tell anybody. There were nine other disciples that didn't get to make the trip. You know, they were like, what happened? Like, Dude. <laughs> I can't even. Like, seriously, I can't. But now Peter can finally say, and he says, we heard this very voice. We were with him on the holy mountain. Our faith is not a myth. And it is based on an eyewitness testimony, and not just from Peter. 
but from a whole host of people. And we know that this is true, that eyewitness accounts matter. We make judicial decisions based off personal testimony and witness of what people see. When we see something magnificent, incredible, or something tragic, we often will say to someone else, did you see that? Like when the Chicago Bears kicker missed a field goal and it hit the upright and didn't bounce in, and then it hit the crossbar and didn't bounce in and bounced forward. Did you see that? I unfortunately was an eyewitness to that. But eyewitness accounts matter. It helps us validate and verify that something is true. We not only have Peter's witness, but we have the witness of other followers who followed Christ, one being John. And if you were to turn right in your Bible, you would hit 1 John as the next book and listen to how he begins his letter to the church. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Our faith in the person and the work of Jesus is grounded in fact. Real history, real people lived and saw him. Walked with him, talked with him, touched him. Saw his death and they saw his resurrection. And there are over 400 eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus that we are told about in scripture. 400. That makes a pretty good case. Peter doesn't stop there. We know our faith is not a myth and there's an eyewitness testimony to it, but then there's more. And he goes on to say this in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says that God has given us a great and precious gift. It's a light in the midst of darkness and it's the truth of his word. Specifically, Peter's referring to the prophecy promises made about Jesus Christ. About who he would be and what he would do. And those things were all fulfilled in him or or are going to be fulfilled when he returns. And Peter refers to that. He says, this is going to be your light until a day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that is going to be the moment when Jesus Christ steps foot fully on this earth. And we who are with him and those who are alive, they will see him. Just as Peter and James and John were eyewitnesses to the glory and the majesty of Christ, we will see it. And we've been given this word. Now, Peter goes on to explain about the Bible that knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter, in his final letter to the church, is reminding that the word of God is God's word. It's from him. It's through him. It's to him. And we can trust it. That this is actual truth. 
In the Apostle Paul's final letter to the church, actually to a a pastor named Timothy, he made this very same claim. And he said, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's useful for us. For teaching and reproof and correcting and training in righteousness. So we would be complete and equipped for every good work. There is a source of truth in our world. And it is the word of God. And we believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. We do not worship the scriptures. But we find the one who we do worship revealed in the pages of these books. It's true that God moved people to write. And so there's personality and creativity found in the pages of these scriptures. But this is something that was put together over a period of 4,000 years. And it is seamless and timeless in its truth. There is no more verified document that we have on the planet than the scriptures itself. Regardless of what secular criticism may say. Our faith is not a myth. And we need this truth because there are realities that we face. And and the corner is about to turn in Peter's letter. That while our faith is not a myth, there are some realities we have to deal with. And the first is, is that we are prone to follow myths. We're prone to follow myths. We have the truth But inside, we are prone to go our own way and attach ourselves to ideas or ideals that are not related to our faith. And so we can become easily distracted and we can become easily manipulated and deceived. One of the deceptions that has made its way into American life particularly is that the goal of life is retirement. And there's this great golden carrot that just hangs out there. And someday you're going to snatch that carrot. And you're going to walk through the pearly gates of Cypress Ridge Golf Course whenever you want. (laughs) And life will finally be on your terms. And there's the myth. The myth is that, that we are prone to follow is that happiness and fulfillment will be found when life is finally on our terms. And it's retirement. For those of you who who live and walk in retirement, I think you may have found that it wasn't quite perhaps what you thought it might be. And that new question surfaced of, well, what do I do now and what's my purpose now? For those of you who are anxiously awaiting those pearly gates of golf or whatever, the promised land of Arizona, it will leave you lacking. If it's not attached, if your hope and your desire is not attached to your faith, the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the mission of making him known. Peter warns us, 
in the most severe passage of all of the New Testament. There is no more harshly worded text than this chapter. This is not a kinder, gentler truth. This is the whole truth and the full picture. Because there are false teachers who will rise up. Just as there were false prophets who came up in the time of the Old Testament. And people will bring in secretive teaching. It's not going to come in as overt. Because then you'd be able to discern. You know, there's something that is a subtle shift that's happened to me. That this passage in preparing for this was, was somewhat of a rebuke. And that is, I don't think that much about the return of Christ. When was the last time you spent time thinking about the fact that he is going to return because he loves you and he's going to heal this place and he's going to make everything wrong that is right he's going to renew he's going to make it known that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it's coming when was the last time you thought about that I have to confess, it has been a while. But for Peter, he's saying this, the the, the resurrection is the proof of our faith, and the return is the powerful motivation of our life to live lives of godliness, to, to share the good news of Jesus because he's coming back. And when he comes back, he will have judgment in his hands. We have this reality that we are prone to follow myths. And there is a judgment coming to those who falsely teach and and lead others astray. Because that's exactly what will happen. And something's at stake. You see in first Peter or in Second Peter chapter one, Peter says, Look, there's some things that if we can add to our faith, some qualities. Not that we can earn our way to heaven. It's it's not that. It's Okay, we have this foundation of faith, so let's build on it. It's virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And if we build up these qualities, we will be fruitful and effective until Jesus comes back. But if we move our hearts away from Christ, his identity and his work, including his return, we will be prone to follow our own sensuality. And the very first thing that gets compromised is virtue. And then the dominoes fall. And instead of living a life bent on helping people find and follow Jesus Christ, we become people who are bent on control and life on our own terms. Either seeking it, building it, or mourning that it's not happened yet. And we will become ineffective and unfruitful. We are prone to follow myths. And things are at stake. Rescue and judgment hang in the balance. Rescue and judgment hang in the balance. And Peter, he, he takes the gloves off here. 
And he gives examples of the righteous judgment of God that has been on display and is a proof that there will be future judgment to come. So the judgment is there against angels who rebelled against God. Then in the, in the ancient world, God destroyed the world with a flood, yet in the midst of that, he found a righteous man and a family, and he spared them and he rescued them. There was a city that had completely turned its, its uh, ways away from honoring God, and God destroyed them, condemning them to extinction. These are not the words we typically see in the New Testament. But it's here, and it's inspired by God, and it is true. He rescued Lot in the midst of this judgment. And Lot was bothered by the conditions around him. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their, the lawless deeds he saw around them. He saw people striving for control and giving sway to whatever desires, and he saw God being dishonored. And it tormented him. Maybe this is a time from a simple reminder to have a gut check of what we see around us. Is God being honored? Is he being lifted up? Are people saying in our world that he is great? And what does that do to us when we find out that the answer is no? Does it, does, is there any kind of response in us? It moved in Jesus. Jesus saw the conditions of the city of Jerusalem and its people. And he wept over what he saw. And it moved him in his compassion to then ultimately for him to make the, the sacrifice that he made. When Christ returns, there will be rescue and there will be judgment. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Especially those who lead others away and those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. How many of you were raised by public educators? How many of you know this pain? <laughs> How many of you in that home had like an administrator? Okay, yeah. So I went to school at a time, and many of you did, when there was still uh, spanking for correction, okay? And there was this awful, awful thing in my home where right outside of my bedroom in the hall closet was a, a pantry or a cabinet, and in that was a selection of paddles that my father had collected over the years of his education. And so for me, I had to go and select my paddle. And I always chose the smallest one. It was like one of those paddle ball paddles that had masking tape around it. <laughs> and so I would go and I would, I would, I would choose that, okay? But there were occasions where dad picked the paddle. Not often. (laughs) Not often. I can't even begin to imagine 
life without Jesus. Not having any hope. And then having him revealed to me and to then see that it is too late. And then to be someone who knowingly, willfully exploited others for personal gain. And to know that in his judgment, there is something even more severe reserved for me. Peter isn't playing games. He's not messing around. If you continue to read the chapter, which we will hear more teaching on, it should, it should shake us up. This whole thing began with a simple reminder that our faith is not a myth. And there is an effective and fruitful life that God will build within you as you remain focused on the person and the work and the return of your Savior. We are easily distracted people. We are easily pulled aside from things that truly matter. This passage is sobering because there's actual rescue or judgment that hangs in the balance. What ought we to be as men and women who follow and love Jesus Christ. He goes back to that list that we are to be men and women and students of virtue who are growing in our knowledge and our understanding of our faith. Now we add to that godliness and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love so that people are helped to find and follow Jesus Christ. And they get to experience the rescue as well. In just a few moments, we're going to be sent out into Shawnee County. And there will be waiting for you certain myths. Myths that there is no absolute truth. And that there is no room for any one group to say that they hold truth over others. That is a myth. And it is not out of arrogance. It is out of humility saying God has chosen to reveal himself. And he has revealed himself through his son Jesus and he has been made known in his word and this is the truth. We can trust it. We can believe it. We can follow it. We can suffer for it. All knowing that when he returns we will finally be rescued. May God use all of us to be people of rescue wherever we go when we leave this place. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. We know that you love us and we know that uh, by faith in you, we find forgiveness of all of our sin and we know that a future is secured for us. But Lord, I pray that we would live mindfully that you are coming back that we actually think about it. Maybe seeing morning, the morning stars in the morning could be a tangible reminder that you are on the way 
You are coming soon. And Lord, until then, we have this light to guide us. And Lord, as we are light bearers, may people see and know that there is a way through the darkness of their soul. And the way is Jesus, and the truth is Jesus, and the life is Jesus. Lord, forgive us if we have stopped thinking about your return. May it be a powerful motivator in our lives to be men and women and students of rescue. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.